Um, let me open with a word of prayer. As you know, this is a brand new class starting this week. Uh, we're, I'm calling it Overview of the Old Testament Part 1 because obviously the Old Testament is very long. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to cover it in all in one 15-week class. So we're going to basically go through Genesis through the, through, um, the Song of Solomon. And then the prophets will be covered in uh, the second part of the class, which... Lord willing, think, all of the things being equal, I will teach right after this class. So, um, why don't we go ahead and pray, and then, then we'll dive into what I have for you this morning. Heavenly Father, we do just praise you this morning through your Son, our great High Priest, and by the Holy Spirit whom you sent to dwell in us. We thank you for redeeming us, for saving us through Christ. We thank you for his perfect life and atoning death and glorious resurrection. We um, put our hope and trust wholly in him, even as he is now risen and reigning at your right hand. And We seek to honor him in our life. Uh, Father, we're so mindful of our weakness as frail human beings and also our sinfulness since we still have remaining corruption. And so we pray that you would once again forgive us of our sins this morning uh, through the blood of Christ and strengthen us by your spirit to engage with you in sincere and heartfelt worship beginning even now in this class. We pray that you would draw our hearts out to, um, to really study your word, to meditate upon it, to think about what it teaches, and that you would minister to us, that you would reveal your glory to us through the scriptures in Christ, and that you would transform us, as Paul said, from one degree of glory to the next into that same image. And we pray that you would particularly bless this class to our souls by giving us a deeper understanding and grasp of the Old Testament, um, not as an end in and of itself, but in order that we might, as Peter said, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray your blessing even upon this first class where we're going to be covering just some introductory matters before diving into the text of Scripture. Please bless it. Please illumine our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, this is overview of the Old Testament. I I could call it introduction to the Old Testament, but if you picked up a book called Introduction to the Old Testament, there's a lot of kinds of things they would cover in there that I'm not going to cover in this class. Basically... What I'm going to do is try to give you a grasp of the Old Testament as a whole. Can bring in some more seats. What is the purpose of this class? You can see that I've put a map here. Um, And I like this little snippet of uh, Google Maps because what you can see is that on the one hand, you have a sort of zoomed out view of this part of Europe. And then on the other hand, you have this bubble that takes you into a, a... a near view of a particular part of Europe. And I think that in some ways reflects what I want to do in this course. What's the purpose of this class? And that is we want to zoom out and look at the landscape of the Old Testament, the teaching of the Old Testament as a whole, so that when we go to any particular part, let's just say you're in Numbers 20 or... You're in the book of Ezekiel in the last eight chapters that you will have a sense of the landscape as a whole in the Old Testament. And it will help you to understand better the different parts where you're at. Whereas if you were to just dive in to that particular spot in the Old Testament without understanding the bigger picture, without having a sense and a grasp of the larger landscape, it would be more difficult for you to understand. And so that's. That's one reason why we would do um, an Old Testament overview, so that you can zoom out, get a better feel 
for the Old Testament as a whole. I also want to say that obviously whenever we're studying the scriptures, what are we, why are we doing it? We're doing it so that we can grow in our knowledge of God. The scriptures, um, first and foremost above everything else, are God's revelation to us of himself, of his plan of salvation in Christ. And so, of course, as we dive into books of the Bible, even though we're looking at it at a broader perspective, we still, our goal is to know God, to understand his plan of salvation, particularly as it's come to fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so hopefully as we go along, um, these are our are sort of more... Um, teaching goal here is to give you a sense of the broader landscape and of course our practical goal is to grow in our knowledge of um, scripture every time you pick up the bible and this is difficult to remember i know i mean i struggle with this at times to remember that the bible says this the word of god is living and active so you're picking up a book that's unlike any other book a book that's the very words of God, and there's nothing else like it. And so we don't want to forget that as we're going through in this study. It's not just information to rattle around in your brain. Um, it's intended to help you to grow your knowledge of God. Okay, so that's a little bit of the purpose of the class. Um, but what about the class itself? What are we going to be doing in this class? Well, first of all, we are, today we are going to be covering some introductory matter. So today is going to be different than all the other classes in this 15-week class. Today we're just going to be looking at some introductory things. But as we dive in, starting next week, we're going to be walking through all 39 books of the Old Testament, uh, or at least in your English Old Testament, and we're going to be discussing basically this, these kinds of things with respect to each book, we're going to look at what's the historical background of the book, who wrote it, when was it written, who was it written to. Um, with respect to some books, we'll be able to know these things. And with respect to other books, we won't. Um, but as much as we can, we'll look at the historical background. We'll look at what's in the book. First of all, we'll look at what kind of literature it is. That's what the word genre means. In other words, is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Is it narrative? Um, and on and on. We'll look at how the book is laid out, its overall structure, um, and we'll look at basically an outline of its contents. And then we'll, we'll dive in and try to understand at a big picture level what it's teaching. What, what is this book teaching? It, why was it written? Right? Um, what is its basic message? And what are some of its underlying themes that, that uh, run through the book? And then... Something that I think is very important is to ask the question, why is it that God put this book in the Bible? Right? So you say, here we have a collection of books. Each book has a specific contribution to the overall whole. Right? And so it's important for us to ask that question, not just to open up to the book of Ruth and say, oh, this is a neat book. Wow, it's really a gem. But to ask yourself, why did God have the book of Ruth in the Bible? What, how does it contribute to the teaching of the Bible, to the storyline of the Bible as a whole? Okay, so this is what we're going to do with each of the 39 books. Um, to one degree or another, we'll be able to spend more time on certain books um, and maybe less time on others. But that's generally what kinds of things to expect as we walk through the books of the Bible in this class. This is to give you a sense, because you might be wondering, okay... How in the world are you going to do that? There's 39 books in the, in the Old Testament, Jeremy. Well, this gives you a little sense of the goal. Uh, so we'll start, we'll devote a whole class to each of the five books in the Pentateuch. By the way, Penta is five. Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, so we'll, then we'll uh, give, in, in some cases, we'll devote a class to two books of the Bible together. And, and then... Uh, when we get to this ending part, we'll, we'll cover what's often called the wisdom literature altogether, but we'll, we will devote two parts. And then, as I said, once you get to Isaiah and all the prophets, that's going to actually be covered in a whole separate class. Okay, so that's a little bit of an 
overview of where we're going. Okay. Yeah, S of S is Song of Solomon. All right, I want to just start with this basic question. What is the Old Testament? All right, you've got this large section in your Bible. What is it? Well, first of all, it could be thought of as a library. In other words, it's a collection of books. It's a collection of 39 books in your English Bible. Um, So it's written by over 30 authors, different people. We're not exactly sure how many authors because there is a many books of the Old Testament that we actually don't know who wrote it. So it's, you know, it's possible that they are written by different authors. It's also possible that they would have been written by the same author. So 39 books, 30 different authors or so. Um, most of this material in the Old Testament books is written in the, the language of ancient Hebrew, although there are a few small portions of it that were written in a language called Aramaic. Those Portions are in Daniel, the book of Daniel, and in the book of Ezra. Now, obviously, when you're reading your English Bible, you don't see that. But if you were to be reading the Bible in the original language, you would notice, strangely, there's a couple of places where it's written in a different language than Hebrew. And then it was written over a period of about a thousand years, about a millennia. That's a very long time. If you think about the history of our own country since its founding, you know, multiply that about four, and that's the period of time over which these books were written. Um, so somewhere around the 15th to the 4th century BC, okay? The Pentateuch being the first books written, although we're not sure about Job, and then Malachi being written in the 300s BC. So, it's a library. It's a library, a collection of books. So, it, at any point during this 1,000 year period, you, you would only have a certain number of those books available because some of them hadn't been written. And it's important that we think of that so that we don't have this sort of, this book descended from heaven on a golden platter in complete form. Um, that's not the case. It's a collection of books that were assembled over time, um, over a period of 1,000 years, written by many different authors Um, Okay, so that's one way of defining what is the Old Testament. But of course, we have to go further than that if we really want to understand the Old Testament and understand that the Old Testament is also God's Word. Um, So the Old Testament was written by 30 or so different authors, but each author was writing under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit of God. And so the Bible is very clear repeatedly in different ways in claiming that it the end product that we have in our Bibles, obviously in its original form of Hebrew and some parts in Aramaic, was written under the inspiration of God so that it is called God's Word. So obviously, just to remind you of a couple of places, 2 Timothy 3.16. Now think about this for a moment. When Paul is writing 2 Timothy what is the, when he says all scripture, what is he primarily talking about? Right, the Old Testament, because there may have been collections of the sayings of Jesus at that time. Of course, some of Paul's letters, all of Paul's letters had been written. This was the last of his letters, Second Timothy. Um, and it's true, they were already being collected and passed around and read alongside the Old Testament as scripture. But if you think of the completed Bible that they were using, the Hebrew Bible that Jesus and the apostles were using, at that point in time, he's thinking primarily of the Old Testament, and he says, so all scripture, every writing that's in the category of scripture, which in that day, our Hebrew Bible, he's saying, is breathed out by God, which is more than just saying that, you know, the people who wrote it were really inspired, like Mozart when he wrote his music, He was just, God helped him, and man, the product is inspired. No, um, this is something else. The the phraseology of breathed out by God is, it's it's speaking of the product using a, a saying that would have meant that the product is the very words of God, right? All scripture is 
breathed out by God. It is the words of God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's one place we see that the Old Testament is to be understood as the, the product of God's own inspiration, such that it is the very words of God. And this is why the New Testament would often look back at the Old Testament, quote it, and say something like, the Holy Spirit said... Right? Or the Holy Spirit said through the mouth of David. Or as God spoke, and then, oh, it's written by a human author, but it's just interchangeable in their minds. This is the very words of God, and so they could describe it that way. Another text is, uh, oh, sorry, Phil. Just real quick question here. Which, do we have any sense that when Paul was saying this, and saying, you know, that referring back to the, the scriptures, that he would have even been thinking that his, his letters that he had written were, were part of that yet? Um, I do. I'm not sure how formed it was in his mind, but you can see places in Paul's writing where he would say things like, if anyone disregards what I am saying, you know, he's disregarding God. Or he's saying, I'm glad that you've received our writing for what it really is, not as the words of man, but as the words of God, right? And I think that they would have understood that as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, that they were ministers of the new covenant, that a new covenant had come, and that meant a new body of revelation is being delivered, and that they would have understood um, for a variety of different reasons. One, Jesus told his apostles that you know after he died, there was many more things that he had to say to them. <laughs> he would bring to their remembrance the things that he had said. The Holy Spirit would reveal these things to them. So there was an expectation that these were ministers of the new covenant and that they were therefore receiving a body of new covenant revelation. That's why, you know, Paul could even go so far as to say that someone who disregarded what he said, like 2 Thessalonians 3, that they could be disciplined. Right? So, yes, in terms of like, did they have this full grasp of, you know, what the New Testament was going to look like? You know, probably not at that point. Yeah, it hadn't been. Yeah, it was still being formulated, and but he, so when you was saying, you know, when you when he's referring back to scripture, right? If he's using that word, that word trans comes across, or that is just curious what. It's, it's, yeah, he was obviously crediting that this was the word of God, and then the further extension of it. I didn't. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thanks for that. Yeah, no problem. And I do think that you know, Second Peter, for instance, <laughs> reveals that the writings of the Apostle Paul were being collected by the early Christian writings, or by the early Christian church, and that they were being already regarded as Scripture. You know, Peter says that false teachers were twisting his writings as they do the other Scriptures, graphe, which is the technical term for the inspired writing. So, you know... How much did Paul understand as he's writing Second Timothy or First Thessalonians that you know, you know, he hands it over to you know, be delivered. This is going to be scripture. How much he was aware of all that, I'm not sure, but he clearly understood and believed that his writings were authoritative. And as soon as they were written, the church was already beginning to recognize them as having the same quality as scripture, collecting them, reading them, distributing them. Um, so that's hopefully a short answer. Second Peter, you know this passage as well, Second Peter 1, 20. Peter says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, so do you see that? No prophecy of scripture, so he's referring to written prophecies contained in the written scripture, um, comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy, again, of scripture, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's reference to at least portions of scripture, In this he's referring to prophecies, he's saying that they were not they're not just the produced by the will of man but by but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit i mean we know that right the prophets would say thus says the lord 
So these are just a couple of places where as we pick up the Old Testament, we recognize, yes, it is a library. It's a collection of books written by over 30 human authors over a a long, a thousand years. But each one was inspired by the one Holy Spirit, by the one God, such that there is, in a sense, there is a sense in which this is one book with one ultimate author, right? And that, therefore, because of that, it we expect that these 39 books are consistent with one another. Um, they're not internally contradictory. Um, and that they tell a single story, which in and of itself is very remarkable, isn't it? That you're picking up 39 books written over a thousand year period by 30 authors or so. And yet they tell a consistent story all the way through. And they're teaching. And it's not like when you go to Ezekiel, you see a different Yahweh than you do in Exodus, right? They're teaching about God, about his character, about his will, his purposes for salvation is consistent. They tell a single story all the way through. And so as we pick up the Old Testament, we recognize we have to, we have to see it in that way as well. Um, both its humanity and its divinity in the sense that it is the word of God, and therefore that everything in it we we read as being perfectly true. So unlike reading a Jane Austen book or or even a John Piper book, where there might be a lot of truth in it, beauty reflected in it, this book is true in everything it teaches. All right? Okay, so any other questions about what is the Old Testament, those two things that you want to ask at this point? Okay. Let me get back to my slideshow here. Okay, so another question we have to ask is, why was the Old Testament written? Why was the Old Testament written? What, what was its purpose when it was originally delivered? This is where I think it's actually helpful to realize that the word testament is just a synonym for covenant, right? So, old, so the collection of 39 books... In the Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament. We could also just say this is the Old Covenant. And these 27 New Testament books, this is the New Covenant. That's what Old Testament, New Testament means, right? And so there is a sense in which when you read, when you pick up the Old Testament books, the story of the Old Testament books goes back all the way to creation, right? So that when you pick it up, your mind and heart is drawn back to the very beginning of time. But it's important to remember that the Old Testament books themselves, the actual books, only go back to Moses, right? So he is telling a story in the Pentateuch that goes back to creation, but the books themselves were written by Moses. Now let me ask you, on what occasion did he write those first five books? What was going on in the history of Israel? The, the tribe of Israel was moving into, into the new land, and he wanted to make sure they knew what was right. going on. Right, so he's, he's telling the people of Israel their history, right? where they came from, um, how they had gotten there, and, and also giving them revelation from God about where they were headed. But, but who, who was Israel? Like, how did this all... On what occasion was he, why was, why the nation of Israel, was he giving them these books and telling them their history? Like reminding them of Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham. Okay. The 12, right. How they got the 12 tribes. But why? What's special about Israel? That they were the chosen people of God. Okay. Yeah, they were the chosen people of God. Chosen for what? The Messiah would come through them. Okay, the Messiah would come through them, but... Also to... uh, The nation was going to be uh, a special people, a a kingdom of priests, to spread the word of who Yahweh is. Right. So all of that is their calling and their identity, but what happens in Exodus 19, right, that is the occasion of it all, right? The giving of the, giving of the law. Yeah, the, the Lord descends on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke. And 
he delivers his law to them and enters into a covenant with them, right? So he enters into the covenant, a covenant with the nation of Israel, often called the Old Covenant or the Sinai Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. He enters into the covenant with the nation of Israel. And then, because they are God's covenant people, right? God delivers to them a body of revelation, explaining to them how they ended up becoming God's covenant people. It goes back to the promise to Abraham, right? God was fulfilling the promise that he had made to Abraham. And then, what does it mean to be God's covenant people? Who are we? We are a chosen priesthood, a royal nation, a people for God's own possession. How are we to live, to keep covenant with God? And he lays out his law, right? So you're to be holy as I am holy. And how do you do that? Well, in summary form, the Ten Commandments. And then the Ten Commandments are then expanded out into a larger law that includes civil laws and ceremonial laws and moral commands. So this is all Old Covenant revelation, right? It's a body of revelation from God to his Old Covenant people. Now, it's easy to see that with respect to the the first five books, right? Written by Moses to Israel. But there's a sense in which you see, were any of the Old Testament books written to anyone else? Not really. Um, they were, you could, you could make arguments about Job, for instance, like that may have been pre, but the... <laughs> to other nations. Right. The, there were elements of the prophecies... Right. What was going to happen to them. But right. But even those were given, delivered to the nation of Israel mm-hmm. as a, in, a, in a sense, in their hearing, right? Because it would be important for them to hear these oracles of judgment upon the nations. But you see, all, everything in the Old Testament, whether you're dealing with the Pentateuch, the wisdom literature delivered by David and Solomon and other wise men, or the prophecies, all of it belonged to the nation of Israel, primarily. That was its original recipients. And it all pertained to their covenant relationship with God under the old covenant, right? Now, it's not to say that it didn't have, like you said, elements that would be relevant to people outside the covenant community or to um, that it wouldn't speak of the future to come, but this is a body of revelation given to God's old covenant people. That's why we call it the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, right? It was to reveal to them who, how they became God's covenant people, who they were as God's covenant people, what their calling was to God's covenant people. Often it was calling them back to fidelity to the covenant, announcing to them what would happen to them for their unfaithfulness to the covenant. You see, old covenant scripture. It was given to God's old covenant people um, for the purpose of uh, helping them understand um, their identity, their calling, etc. Now, again, I'm, I'm going to build on that. Some of you are saying, but, 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 that's okay. We'll we'll get there. In fact, the very next slide. (laughs) So, obviously, the Old Testament is, your Bibles don't end with the Old Testament, right? So, at some point, you get done with Malachi, and, you know, in your Bible reading, you know, perhaps you get done with Malachi, and you're like, all right, Matthew, you know. (laughs) You shouldn't do that, but still, sometimes we do, because it can be hard going. But you get to Matthew. In fact, you probably have a page in your Bible that says the New Testament, right? (laughs) So the new covenant, introducing you to a new body of revelation, right? Um, That is connected with a new covenant, right? And given to a new covenant people. So who's the new covenant people? The church. The church of Jesus Christ. Those who by faith are united to Jesus Christ. Unless you're a Presbyterian, and then it's also your infants. But let's just say, from a Baptist perspective, it is those who are united by faith through the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ. They are a new covenant people. Ah, and now we have a new body of revelation delivered to the church through his apostles, through Jesus, uh, by means of the apostles. Jesus didn't write any books, right? 
his revelation was delivered through the apostles. And so you have a new body of revelation. So when you pick up your Bible, you have both of those together, right? And obviously they're together because they all are inspired by the one God. They're all his word. But, um, and, so they, and so they do belong together. How do they fit together? And this is where I want to say, how does the Old Testament fit into that bigger book of Revelation, right? Well, there's a number of things to say. First of all, it's part one of a two-part story, right? So the storyline that ends in Malachi is picked up again in um, Matthew. In fact, it's very interesting that Malachi announces the arrival of the Lord, but that there would be one who would go before him, right? Uh, who would be Elijah or continuing the, uh, um, reviving, as it were, the ministry of Elijah. And who would that be, right? John the Baptist. So the storyline of the, of the Old Testament is picked up in the New and it is brought, when you get to the book of Revelation, you see a prophecies telling you the end of the story, among other things. But one of the things it is, it takes you to the very end of the story. The Old Testament has promises that the New Testament tells you are being now fulfilled, right? So you often have that formula. Do you remember um, like Galatians chapter 3, he talks about the Abrahamic promise, right? And how Jesus is, Jesus is the seed of Abraham, right? Or in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, all the promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So you have promises made in the Old Testament, promised to Abraham, to David, and through the prophets. And they are all now being fulfilled in the New Testament. The New Testament tells you how they're fulfilled. You also have prophecies spoken um, in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New. I was just reading today, in my, or yesterday in my devotions, I was reading in the book of Matthew, and it talks about Jesus going around healing people. And then it says, and this was so that the words of the prophet would be fulfilled, that he carried our diseases and sorrows, I'm I'm butchering it, but it's referring to um, Isaiah 53, saying that Jesus' ministry of healing was a fulfillment. And that's, that's just very common throughout, right? So Jesus is the one whom the prophets spoke. His ministry is what the prophets foretold. You remember on the day of Pentecost, where the people are like, what is going on? Some people accused them of being drunk, and Peter stood up and said, this is... What was spoken of through the mouth of the prophet? And then he quotes from Joel chapter 2, right? So, this is that. It was fulfilled in the New Testament. And then, of course, you have all kinds of what you call types. Persons, things, uh, institutions that prefigure and point forward to something that would look like them but be greater. So, a classic example of this would be the sacrifices, right? Sacrifice, 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 right? So when you have types, you have something that is that God created in history, established in history, like the sacrificial system that was intended to provide a prefiguring of a greater reality, which would look like it, but be greater, right? So Jesus is the once for all sacrifice, the blood of goats and bulls could not take away sin, but they pointed forward to Jesus and his sacrifice, which could. And also the priesthood, right? And also the temple itself, right? Which the writer of Hebrews said is a copy of the true tabernacle in heaven, right? So, and then, of course, the church of Jesus Christ is described as a very temple. The veil has been rent. We now have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. So now he dwells in us. We are the temple of his presence. So you see, there's all kinds of types in the Old Testament that provide foreshadowings, pointing forward, like, in a sense, visible prophecies pointing forward to a greater reality. Now, this is the point. What is at the center of these two bodies of revelation, Old Covenant revelation and New Covenant revelation? What holds them together? What is their great high point? 
It's Jesus Christ, right? It's the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom the storyline of the whole Bible, starting in the Old Testament and coming into the New, finds is pointing you to, right? So if you're walking the path of the Old Testament, when you get to the end, who's there? Jesus, right? Presented to us in the New Testament. Promises made, all the promises, find their yes and amen in Jesus, right? He is the true seed of Abraham. He is the ultimate anointed one in whom the, pro- the promise of 2 Samuel 7 uh, to David would be fulfilled. He is the great branch and the good shepherd and um, the, the king who, to who would inherit the nations that all the prophecies of the Old Testament were pointing to, right? And he is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows, right? In fact, the New Testament goes to great lengths to say, look, don't go back to the old covenant religion, right? To the religion of the Jews, because that was meant to point you forward to Christ. And he's come. So if you go back there, there, there's nothing there, right? The fulfillment has come. The shadows have passed because the reality which cast the shadows back into the Old Testament is here. So don't go back to the shadows. There's nothing there. They're going to only point you forward to Jesus, right? So, so this is how the Old Testament fits into the Bible. It's, 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 there's a sense in which you can say the Old Testament is all about Jesus, right? It's, it's pointing you forward to him, whereas the New Testament is saying, he has come, and this is what it means, right? So this is how the Old Testament fits, into the, the, fits together with the New Testament. It's all about Jesus. You remember how Jesus told the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. But these spoke of me, and you will not come to me, that you might have life. So do you see the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus understood that they were speaking of him, and now he's here. And the New Testament is a new body of revelation that belongs to, that is given to the new covenant people, which announces the arrival of Jesus Christ and tells us what it means. And particularly, it's just chock full of Old Testament allusions and citations um, because it's telling you this is everything that the Old Testament was pointing you to. Okay, so pause there because this is very important. Any questions about this, about this so far? The relationship of the old to the, to the larger uh, biblical revelation. Pretty clear, clear. Yeah. It's called an anti-type. Is it anti-against? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just sort of I I'm not sure exactly even the definition of anti-type, but it's just the um, the other side of the typology. So the type gives you a prefiguring. The anti-type is is the real thing, is the real thing right? Okay. You, you could also say shadow and substance, yeah. right? Okay. Any other questions? All right, let's keep moving forward. I I want to tell you a little bit about this because I think it is important just to understand when we're talking about the Old Testament, if you were living in Jesus's day and you were using a Hebrew Bible, or if you were a Greek-speaking Jew, you might have used what's called the Septuagint, um, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But the Hebrew Bible which was being translated in the Greek New Testament, is even today, you, can, you could look it up on the internet, you could type in Tanakh. It's um, the, what, the way you would refer to the Hebrew Old Testament. Right? I say Hebrew Bible because if you lived in Jesus' day, that's the Bible you had, because that's all the revelation that had been given at that point. Right? It's often called the Tanakh because Tanakh, the Hebrew word, which is made up of three Hebrew letters, Every Hebrew word has what's called a tri-radical root. It's made up of three Hebrew letters, and then they add stuff to the beginning and the end. But you have uh, three Hebrew letters that correspond. So Tanakh, right? Uh, The Tav uh, corresponds with the word Torah. So it's like an acronym, T. I'm just going to use the Englishized version of this, right? T for Torah. In the English, that would be translated law. 
And then the N or Nun um, stands for Neveim, which is the Hebrew word for prophets, right? And then the the K for the stands for Ketuvim, which is means writing. So Tanakh is an acronym for a, a three a threefold a breakdown of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, right? And you can see them broken down here. And as you read through them, you see, okay, the law, or the Torah, in the acronym Tanakh, right? T, Torah, that refers to the first five books of the Bible. They call it the law. Why, why do you think they call it the law? Why do you think? It's obvious, right? Right, so... I'm going to give the points to Marinelle because she's the one. <laughs> so yeah, so when you look at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you have a, a giving of the Old Testament law to Israel. There's lots of other things. There's the history of the people and whatnot, but, it, but it's called the law because there you have the encapsulation of the Old Covenant law that Israel would always be looking back to. Um, sometimes it would just be shorthand referred to as Moses, right? As it was written in Moses and the prophets. Why is that? Because Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Okay. The prophets, you would think that this would refer to like to all the, the prophetic books. But actually the prophets, the Nevaim, was a reference to these books here, beginning with Joshua and running through the minor prophets. So in your Hebrew Bible, the you'd have a book that was just called the 12 or, and it basically contained all the minor prophets in one book, right? So you have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. That's in this section called the Nevaim. Uh, and then the third part is called Ketuvim, so T-N-K, Tanakh, right? The third part is the writings. Um, and there you had, obviously, the Psalms. In fact, um, sometimes this whole section of the Old Testament would just simply be called the Psalms, right? Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Why do you think it, it, the Psalms would be the shorthand way of referring to this section of the Old Testament? Longest book, right? I mean, it's a collection of smaller books, but it's the longest book. So then you'd, you'd have Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Esther, Daniel. There's also something else about this. Why do you think they'd be grouped together like that? Those particular books. I mean, you got some prophets mixed in there. Mm-hmm. And the Chronicles doesn't go up with the Kings, which is odd. Right. Why, why do you think? What is it about all those books? Do they have anything to do with the Young Scrolls? No, I don't think so. Well, the Chronicles, I mean, it's referred to as writings, but like if you just look at Chronicles, it is repeating a lot yeah. of the things that's in the prophets. Yeah. And at the end of the but Kings mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think where I was reading it. At the end of the Kings it always says um, something about the, the life of this mm-hmm. um, Yeah, is referenced in the right. also listed in the chronicles of the right. kings of Israel. Yeah, th- this is that, is that part of it because it's think, they think of it more of a, as a writing and not history. Yeah, I mean there is some overlap here, right? And I don't know all the reasons, but one thing that we can see about this section is that there's a lot in here that is post-exile. And is pointing forward to anticipating the the restoration out of exile. Now, obviously, Ezekiel is also post-exile and some of the minor prophets as well. But there is a sort of a grouping here, not only because of a, a genre. There's a, the wisdom literature is in here, but there's also a sort of post-exilic. I mean, even a lot of the Psalms, the Psalter ends anticipating the return out of exile. Um, um, and so I think that may have something to do with the grouping. Um, but let me just say this. 
the, one of the reasons I think this is important just to understand this background is you can actually see this in the New Testament and the way that it, um, the way that the apostles and Jesus talked about the Old Testament. You can see that they were using the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, with this threefold division. In Luke chapter twenty-four, verse forty-four, Jesus, for instance, says. Um, This is the risen Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus' threefold division there is reflecting the fact that he's using the Tanakh in, um, in, in in this form. And then also something interesting, just this is sort of a little trivia, but... Luke chapter 11, verse 51. If um, In that little snippet, Jesus says that you know, the Jews would be guilty of the blood of all the, all the prophets, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now it's interesting, where in this list does, is Abel killed? Okay, the very first book, obviously. Does anyone know where the account of the prophet Zechariah being killed is found here. Second Chronicles 24. What's interesting is this is the actual order in which the books appear in the Tanakh, right? The Hebrew Old Testament. He's saying, so when you see that, you realize, oh, he's saying from all, all the prophets, from Abel to Zechariah, right? It's reflecting the, the Hebrew order of the Old Testament books as they were in the original text. What else is interesting about this? How many books are in this, the Hebrew Bible? You're counting up. Yeah, 24 books, right? I have them listed up there. So it's one of these easy questions. Um, so not only are they in a different order, but they're also in a, a different number of books. Now, does that mean that the Hebrew Bible that Jesus and the apostles were using is, has less in it than ours? No. What's happened here? Any idea? What's happened? Why is there only 24? Right. Some of the material has been consolidated. All 12 minor prophets are in one book. There's no 1st and 2nd Kings, no 1st and 2nd Samuel, right? Ezra and Nehemiah are together. Chronicles are together. So some of the material originally was consolidated, obviously, just into one book. Um, that's why there's only 24, but it's, it's the same material as that we have in our English Bibles today. Okay, now, let me take you to the English Bible. It's the same material as in the Hebrew Old Testament, as in the Tanakh. It's divided up, though, into 39 books instead of 24, and that's obvious, right? 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah are separated, right? The Minor Prophets are separate books. So that's where we get the 39 books, but it's the same material as in the uh, Hebrew Bible, in our English Bible. So don't worry that when you pick it up, you're like, oh no, I have too much in here, right? (laughs) No, it's the same material. The books are actually grouped differently, though. Some people talk about them being grouped into three sections, and their groupings are grouped according to shared features. So... Here we have history, right? And then poetry, and then prophecy. But actually, a lot of people will talk about it being broken up even further into the first five books being the law, and then the books of history, the books of poetry, and then the major and minor prophets. Um, Now, it is interesting that they're grouped that way, you can see that the, the arrangement is different from the Tanakh, just in the sense that they're grouped more by shared features rather than whatever the logic was for putting them into the threefold division of the Tanakh. Now, because you can see that the order is not exactly chronological, is it? Right? <laughs> so, for instance, Esther, right? That takes place, you know, long after the exile, and yet... Um, you know, Jeremiah the prophet ministered before the exile, right? So it's not chronological. They're ordered. They're 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 put in a in sort of groupings by shared features. But also, it is interesting that within the groupings, like if you just take these history books, there is a sort of chronological 
order to them. They're sort of put in the order of the storyline as it unfolds in these books, right? Now, first in Chronicles, may have, Second Chronicles, for instance, they may have been written later on, but um, but they tell the story, that part of the story. So there's a there is a sort of chronological ordering here, where you know Malachi was the last prophet in the Hebrew Bible. It's Second Chronicles. But Malachi was the last prophet. So there is a sort of chronological ordering within within the history books, poetry, and then prophecy. Right? So that's a little bit of background about your Old Testament, just by way of understanding you know, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible that you see reflected in the New Testament, and, all, and then our English Bible, so that we understand that it's the same material, it's just arranged a little bit differently. Okay? Any questions on any of this before we move forward? Yeah. So, um, today's Jews. Yeah. What's the order that they use? I'm gonna have to pass on that. I'm I don't know. It's possible. If anyone else knows, yeah, I should ask Aaron. I'm actually not sure on that. Yeah. Anyone else? In the classes I've been taking, it said that a lot of the current Jews do not have any understanding of the Old Testament at all. Oh, yeah. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, the vast majority of Jews today are secular. Wouldn't really be observing religious at all. But in terms of, like, Orthodox Judaism, do they use the Tanakh? I, I would guess that they would, but I'm not exactly sure on that. Any other questions before we move on? All right. I want to address a couple of other issues because, you know, if you were to pick up uh, an introduction to the Old Testament book, you would find a lot about this particular issue. And I just want to address it very briefly. The question is, was the Old Testament edited? Right? Edited, in other words, was the material sort of changed from its original form over time by editors who were going back and rearranging the material or adding or subtracting, that type of stuff, right? So the, the question is important because it pertains to the fact that is the text that we have now, is it the text that was originally written or has it been changed and tampered with over time by editors, right? Now, liberal scholars have suggested that the Old Testament books have been heavily edited over time. So that the final form that we have now, well, it's fine to study it, but that's not what was originally written. And obviously they would deny that they were written by, you know, they would deny that the first five books were written by Moses or that Isaiah was written. You know, Isaiah has three Isaiahs. There's first Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah. And really second and third Isaiah are the parts of the books that were written by other people later on after Isaiah, etc. So... There's a, been a whole discipline developed called biblical criticism, and there's multiple disciplines within this form criticism and, and other kinds of criticism that is really all about trying to go back into the book and, and see the layers of editing to find out, uh, oh, see, this, this, this wasn't written by the original author, this was changed, that must have been added in later on, etc., and so it's the discipline of trying to trace the development of the text over time. And so even within a book like Genesis, you know, they're going to argue that, oh, here you can see the additions of a later author, etc. Now, as evangelicals, we have denied the validity of this whole, of the theory that the books were heavily edited. And we've denied the whole discipline of trying to, you know, trying to find how the, te- the form of the Old Testament changed over time through a process of editing. And one of the big reasons for this is that the evidence for that, obviously it denies, it would deny the inspiration of Scripture, right? But it's also just, the evidence for it is just so, so unsubstantial. You know, it could be as simple as things like looking at Isaiah 40 through uh, what is it, 60-something, 60 66, and saying, well, see, this talks about things that were future to Isaiah's time. Therefore, it could not have been written by Isaiah. Why? Well, because Isaiah couldn't possibly have really known all these things that would unfold, and so this must have been written by a second Deutero-Isaiah. It could be as simple as that. Or sometimes they're looking at changes in... Um, 
You know, if you look at the oracles of Jeremiah, well, these contain different vocabulary than these. And so they must have been written by a different person. Well, let me ask you this. You know, Jeremiah ministered over the period of 40 years. If someone went back to some of your writings that you wrote 20 years ago and compared them to the writings now, would there be some differences in vocabulary and style and whatnot? Of course. So the the point is, is that the evidence for it is just so um, either presumptuous or vacuous. There's really no reason to do this, right? In fact, if anyone took the writings of any of these biblical critical scholars and applied to them the techniques that they use for the Bible, they could find all kinds of other authors that, oh, this must have been changed over time because of this, this, and this. It really just doesn't work. There's no reason for it. And so we maintain that the Old Testament books were, we have them in the form that they were originally written. Of course, with some very minor editing. For instance, the last chapter of Deuteronomy records the death of Moses, right? So if Moses wrote the Pentateuch, when you get that last chapter, right? Moses couldn't have written about his own death. So is there some minor editing? Or the Psalms, right? The Psalms are written over a long period of time. Of course, it was a book that must have been put together and arranged over a long period of time because of the fact that they weren't all written at the same time, right? So there, is there some minor editing? Yes, of course, and God superintended the process, but it's generally in the form that it was originally written is what we have, right? So that's just an issue that I think is important to address because it is a, a massive issue in biblical studies. Question, yeah, fair enough. Uh, some of that, like the, the liberal scholars section that you mentioned there, isn't some of that probably trying to discredit Word of God. Oh, of course, they would never say that. But it certainly has had that effect, whether that was their intent or not. I mean, I think they're all wanting to present themselves as objective and objective scholars, but they're unbelieving. They don't, they reject off the bat supernaturalism. They reject the moral teachings of Scripture. And so, so the, in some ways, the discipline of Old Testament studies, for instance, has been relegated to modern scholars looking at the Bible and saying this reflects the development of religious views of people in times past that certainly changed over time. And, and that's what you're seeing is you're seeing the, you know, books that were changed and develop as different people had their hands in them and they reflect the changing and evolving religious views of people in times past. So they certainly, it denies the inspiration of the text that there is a, that there is a divine author. And, and, and I think, vastly underestimate the the coherence. I mean, so it's like you don't see what's obviously there, right? right. The coherence in of the scriptures is ignored in favor of trying to pick it apart and identify uh, all these fake differences and developments. So it also ignores the fact that the Jews carefully guarded these things because these were their holy scriptures. Well, so Right. To, to let a whole bunch of people write this, and you know, it is all phony and stuff. Right. So we're uh, another another thing I need to say here, which I should have said off the bat. What kind of if if there was like if this text changed dramatically over periods of time, what kind of evidence might you expect to see? Well, you might expect to see ancient manuscripts that reflect different forms of the text, but you don't see that. So essentially, there is no evidence for this kind of idea other than the sort of way they look at the text and break it up themselves, right? Which, as I've said, doesn't, it has a, an illegitimacy to it <laughs> because it presumes certain things. And um, so whole tomes will be written about this with no hard evidence, right, <laughs> to support it. Okay, I want to get to one more thing before we end, and that is the Old Testament and archaeology. Because there's a lot of question. I mean, I think a lot of young people, for instance, will get to, you know, college or university and and might hear someone say, well, obviously the Old Testament isn't true. It's been proven not true. Archaeology has proven that, you know, that it's it's contradicted by archaeology. The great irony of this, right, is that 
The entire discipline of modern archaeology is a relatively recent phenomenon, right? And what's interesting is that prior to the development of archaeology as we understand it, you know, Enlightenment scholars studying the Bible assumed that it was all fictitious, made up, like other mythical documents, right, from the ancient world. And then came along biblical archaeology, particularly in that part of the world in which you have ancient civilizations, and guess what they started finding? Mm -hmm. Reference after reference after reference after reference, digging up amazing things, referring to, you know, (laughs) kings listed in the Bible, people groups that they had no idea actually existed, like a famous one is they had no idea for the longest time who the Hittites were. They're mentioned throughout the Bible and they didn't know who they were. They just assumed they never existed. And then they found this huge city up on a, a tell in um, a particular region of Mesopotamia, what was Mesopotamia. And they, disc- through archaeological discovery, they're like, this is a massive city. Like, no one's esca- excavated. We don't know what it is, but it's huge. I mean, this would be akin to like Rome or Nineveh. And guess what they found? This was the capital of the Hittite Empire. They found inscriptions and other things, and all of a sudden, this previously unknown, only in the Bible, people is now discovered as having existed, right? This is over and over again. I just, when I was preaching through Jeremiah, I found that they had recently discovered that emerged in the antiquities market these bullas. Bullas are clay seals, right? Someone. Uh, puts their impression into uh, on a seal, a clay seal, to say who it was from, right? And they found a bulla, actually multiple of them now, that are sealed with the inscription that says, Baruch, son of Neriah. Well, who is Baruch, son of Neriah? He was the scribe of Jeremiah. And, you know, could it be some other Baruch, son of Neriah? Potentially, but it, it, everything about it fits that this, was, that this man really existed. Discoveries like this have only, almost universally confirmed the, the scriptures, right? Now, so what do you say? Why do people get this idea that archaeology has somehow discredited the Bible? Well, it's because every time you dig something up, you have to interpret the, these details, right? There's no, it's not like you dig something up and, and it just gives you this story right off the, the bat. There are certain things that are obvious, um, but it all has to be interpreted. So is it true that some scholars will dig things up, make archaeological discoveries and say, ah, see, this means that blah, 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 a certain interpretation of certain facts? Of course. And do some of these interpretations contradict the biblical record? Yes, right? But so what you have is that the Old Testament contradicts certain interpretations of some archaeological findings um, and oftentimes, those things change, right, pretty dramatically. Like, there's an account recently of people had long thought that biblical Sodom, they thought that it was in a different location, and the details that they were discovering at a particular location that they thought was biblical Sodom didn't really fit the account of, you know, Sodom being destroyed by fire and brimstone. But there was a particular archaeologist who said, well, what if we actually looked in the location that the Bible describes Sodom as being, and they found a site, and as they went through the, the layers of the, they call them tells, they're basically ruins of an ancient city. They were built one on top of another, so you get this mound. And as they dug down, they found that at about the proper layer, in terms of the time frame, there was evidence of a massive citywide destruction. All of it is it's still being excavated today. The findings have been put into you know, academic, peer-reviewed journals. It, of course, doesn't make the news. If they found something that they contradicted the Bible, that would be on every... But, but it's, and it's been peer-reviewed that, yes, this is most likely, uh, truly, biblical Sodom, and it, there is evidence of some kind of incredible destruction. So so you might have an archaeological theory based on interpretation of certain evidence that then changes over time as new things are discovered. But nowhere has there been some kind of obvious contradiction to the Bible, to the Old Testament. Okay, so 
Boy, it's 10.07. Okay, so this is the last slide. We're ready now, I think, to dive in to the Old Testament. If you have further questions... Right. We're tentative, but we're ready. Okay, so if you have further questions about any of this, I know I kind of left you hanging there with an intriguing subject. Please come and talk with me after class. I'll be happy to talk about it uh, and point you to some resources if you like. By the way, just to say, this is one of the great archaeological discoveries of our era. This is Hezekiah's tunnel. We're talking about Hezekiah digging a tunnel from the springs of Gihon to feed into the city and fill that giant pool. And the story behind this is just incredible. There was two young boys that decided that they were going to explore this tunnel. And as they were, it was filled with water, as they were feeling along, one of the boys actually felt an inscription on the wall. And somehow word got back. They'd been being naughty, essentially. Word got back to someone who knew about these things. He, when he heard a word of some kind of inscription found, they went and looked, and it actually is a Hebrew inscription on the side of the tunnel talking about the tunnel being built in Hezekiah's day, right? And so those are the types of things that have been found. You know, how come you didn't see that on the news, by the way? I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense, right? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls was a huge thing all over the news when they were discovered. And I remember as a girl how encouraging it was to see that uh, Isaiah predated the time of Christ. Because scholars were saying, no, Isaiah was written after Christ because it couldn't have possibly been written. Yeah. That was a huge... And this is the type of thing that modern archaeology has actually done. It's not the story that you hear, but it actually is true. Um, It's pretty incredible. I mean, there's nothing like it in the ancient world in terms of confirmation of... So, anyways, let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together today. We thank you for the blessings of being able to study your word together. We pray that as we as we dive in and as we walk through the Old Testament together and looking at it from this big picture perspective, we pray that you'd feed our souls with the bread of your word, nourish and strengthen us and give us a greater knowledge of you and of your son and a greater confidence even in the truthfulness of your word that we might rest our lives upon it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.